Carson Stooley. It's Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the lead prospect writer for Fangraphs.com, Kyla McDaniel, the lead prospect writer for Fangraphs.com. As he has in past weeks, Kyla McDaniel has supplied the musical interlude for this edition of Fangraphs Audio, an effort which I believe uh, is McDaniel's way of honoring the Jewish New Year. I'd say it's an unorthodox way of doing so, uh, but heartfelt, one assumes. Heartfelt. So what you'll hear uh, is the end of this introduction, and then a brief audio interlude, courtesy Kyla McDaniel, and then an, a conversation with Kyla McDaniel about baseball prospects. It's Fangraphs Audio, features Kyla McDaniel. Thank you. Yeah. I'm right. Are you in Florida? Yes, I am. Oh, okay. How's that uh, going? Well, surprisingly good because I uh, I managed to get just the right amount of sun the last few days at these Instructs games to where I got a little color and I'm not sunburned, which being a pale Irish guy is almost impossible. Yeah, right. Do you uh, do you wear some manner of uh, protection? Sunscreen? Or I I was just gonna say, were you suggesting condoms? Because I usually don't wear them to the games. <laughs> You never know what what'll happen. Yeah, you got to be prepared. Well, know? and just uh, yeah, but no, do you use uh, do you use sunscreen? Or? Yeah. So yesterday I was out in the sun for like three hours, so obviously I had to. Uh, today actually the game was at the Trop, so it was inside, and then I got home and went out on the lake for a little bit. And I was out for maybe twenty minutes, so I didn't have to when the sun was going down. But uh, yeah, other, otherwise, if it's more than twenty minutes, or if the sun is up and shining. Uh, and it's more than like ten minutes, then yeah, I got it slathered on. Whereas most scouts, they'll just like they'll wear those long sleeve fishing shirts and a big bucket hat and just skip the sunscreen, which I can't do. Right. Well, here here's two questions. One, and a lot of this because I don't really understand Florida that well. One is you said the lake. Is there a particular lake? Oh, I live on a lake. Oh, you live on a lake? Yeah, I live on a lake. Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah, it's like uh, well, actually right now I'm sitting. Uh, Three feet from a from a like a sliding glass door, mm-hmm. and like fifteen feet beyond that door, there's a giant lake. Oh, that's great! Is it? A, yeah, is I'm it look, a famous I'm lake right now? Uh, it's it? one of the bigger ones in Tampa. It's called Lake Magdalene. It's oh. big enough. To, actually, the funny thing is, I was told an international scouting director that I've never met before lives on this lake. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I knew he lived in town, but it, and then somebody told me like, "Oh, you live on Lake Magdalene? Yeah, he's on that too." Oh, there you go, Lake yeah. Magdalene. Yeah, and it, it's it's pretty. Oh yeah, I can send you a picture. Yeah, maybe do that. We'll do it after we're done recording here. And then the other thing is, here's a question about Florida. Sometimes I see like uh, people in the sun, and they've put a lot of uh, what looks like a uh, sunscreen on their nose in particular. <laughs> and it's like, well, no, no, but like it's like a it. The, 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 you won't see the sunscreen anywhere, but then there's a lot on their nose or some sort of thing on their nose. Is that is it just regular sunscreen? I I literally do not understand that. I think it became a joke because it was like like European people that are never in the sun come to Florida and don't know how to like rub it in the sunscreen correctly, and that mm-hmm. was sort of the funny place to leave it. But yeah, I I couldn't explain that. But like I see lifeguards, I feel like sometimes have it. Yeah, no, I actually intentionally use the spray stuff just because it's easier to not like I. So some people, myself included, just hate the feeling of like a giant glob of cold lotion that you're rubbing all over yourself. Like yeah. It, it's not a fun sensation, especially when it's, like, really hot and you don't want to do it. 
So I like the sort of spray and just kind of like quick rub and you're good. The, okay, yeah. The whole the whole sensation experience of the 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 lotion globbing I've I've walked away from. I've I've moved on. Wait, with this lake you're around, can you can you uh, can you put a chair next to it and then uh, consume some manner of adult beverage beside it? Uh, you better believe it. I actually have a New York strip steak sitting in the fridge that I'm going to go grill uh, once right after. it's over. Yeah. Hey, you know, I'm looking at this. Uh, just I'm doing some illicit Google mapping, and there there do appear to be a number of uh, small bodies of water in the greater Tampa area. Yeah, there's. I grew up on another lake, and like half of my friends in high school all lived on lakes. It's it's not one of those things where you have to be like super rich or to like get a house here on a lake, just because there's so many of them. Right, and and um, uh, so what uh, do you, are there bugs or other manner of critter that might threaten you? It's actually not that bad here. I, I have some family in South Georgia, and it's, like, terrible in the summers there. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't walk around anywhere without just getting crushed by gnats and stuff. Yeah. It's actually not bad here at all. It, it, sometimes, especially, this is an experience you get on any sort of living close to any body of water. After it rains a lot, it's much easier to find, like, ants and cockroaches and stuff just, like, in and around the house because they're kind of getting away from the water. Right, right, right. But that's really the only – and that's usually after – if it rains for, like, two hours for the next, you know, 12 hours, you'll have to pay attention to that kind of thing. Uh-huh. That's the only kind of bug thing I have. It's not this is good. Flies. This is good information. I Again, I don't understand Florida, but I do go there sometimes. and uh... Especially after our misinformation about the Keys. I feel like I needed to really just get something in my wheelhouse about Yeah, Florida. but this is where you're from. Yeah. Now, have you ever been – have you ever driven on Bears Avenue? Bears with two S's. Yeah, no, I. Uh, how do you how do you I, pronounce that? Bears. Sometimes it's, bear, bears. Sometimes bears. It's, yeah, S, it's yeah. as if it has really been. It's been transcribed from the Superfan skit that was. I was on, just gonna say it sounds just like that. Yeah. Yeah, it does because there's it really is. It's spelled with two S's. Yeah, no, I live on the other end of the lake. I actually prepare for a douchebag comment. I have a paddleboard. And so I take the paddleboard and and paddleboard to the other side of the lake to Bears, where I can see the traffic, and then I turn around and come back. Do you feel like if you were going to prepare us for douchebag comments throughout the whole podcast, that that it would that the podcast would just really be a series of um, you know disclaimers? How about before I say <laughs> douchebag comment coming, you just play a reggae tone horn just to get everybody on, on their toes. Get everyone, get everyone ready. Right, well, I, just sent you, I sent you a picture of my view from where I'm recording. It's not your fault, though. You're from Florida. It's a strike against you to begin with, I, which is I, a baseball metaphor. <laughs> wow. It's quite a segue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was born this way. So if you want no, to make yeah, it that's not, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. That's a good Will <laughs> Hunting moment, yeah. R.I.P. Robin Williams. All right. Oh, yeah, R.I.P. Oh, I know. It's so sad. Well, I guess he did it to himself. So it wasn't, Anyway, the whole thing is sad. Um, hey, I have a question with regard to uh, prospects and prospect analysis. Mm-hmm. Is uh, okay. So we've come to a point in the year when every minor league season uh, has concluded. Um, some players, for example, Daniel Norris, whose uh, start from earlier today, I have not examined. Uh, I was going to look at video of that later today, though. Uh, um, but most guys, most prospects, uh, have not been recalled to the major league, uh, to the major, to the parent club. And where, so where are they right now? Well, that's a great segue into what I'm doing right now. Um, so I was just at Instructional League, which uh, today the – I believe the Diamondbacks do this also, but Instructs are at the spring training homes in Atlanta – or in Atlanta, in uh, Arizona and Florida. Okay. And so the Rays just had their one game every Instructs, which usually runs four weeks. Uh, teams will kind of stagger the start, so 
usually for one week just a couple teams are playing. For the last week, usually just a couple teams are playing. And then in the middle, usually every team that has a spring training home, one or two, sometimes will skip it. Like, I, I believe the Tigers are skipping it this year. The what Mets do you, skip What do you mean skipping? They're not doing... They just don't do it. No instructional league. Yeah, when I was in Baltimore, we didn't do it one year because they were renovating Sarasota, which is where it would have happened. And so we did, like, a mini version of it in Baltimore. Okay. Which was good for me because I was working in Baltimore. So I got to... I got to sort of get a chance to interact with the players more than I used to and all that sort of thing, and they got to be in a big league stadium, which is great. Uh, but, yeah, like, sometimes teams will do it for expenses. Usually, like, instructional league, for instance, like, the, I think we talked about this before, the Pirates will bring, like, 80 players, and this year they split it into two teams. The years In the years past, they would give you a roster with 80 players on it. At any given time, there would only be, like, 40 players at the field, and then they would slowly, in like groups of ten and twenty, bring them out and bring them in. And so, if you wanted to cover instructs and like have a report, a short report on each guy, mm-hmm. you have to send in like three scouts at different times throughout those like four to six weeks to try to see all the players. So wait, Whereas, wait, wait. Let me interrupt with a naive question, right? Uh, okay. Now you're saying as a as a scout from one friend, uh, organization scouting the players from another organization. Yes. And you're just, and that's, again, this is super naive and I apologize for it. Well, I but, probably should have explained more. No, 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 but you're just allowed to, you're, and it, it makes sense, I guess, but you can just show up and now you're looking at another team's players. Yeah, so I guess the, typically what instructs is, is a slightly bigger than a minor league team. So maybe say instead of 25, it'll be like 35 or 40 with some rehab guys mixed in. So there's like a core of like 20 guys that are actually playing. Uh, and for those four to six weeks, they'll have, say, out of the seven days, you'll have one off day, maybe two or three camp days, and the rest of them will be games against the other teams in your area that are playing. So uh, there's, like, five teams around Tampa. They all play each other. Uh, so, like, for instance, the Yankees complex is, like, ten minutes from my house, and so I see their team a lot. And because all of their recent July 2 guys that they just spent $30 million on are all here, so I, those are that's, like, the team I most want to see out of all 30. And also there's a different team playing them at their place basically every other day. Makes it an easy choice for me to just go see who the Yankees are running out today and then whatever other team of the four or five around here is coming in town. Uh, today's game was the Rays one game where they played at the Trop. And the Rays are an hour and a half away, and they played the Red Sox, who are two hours away from me. So typically I get only one or two shots when they come close to me, and the Trop is only like 45 minutes from me. So I got it was an easy way to scout in a big league stadium to not be in the sun, and then typically both teams will – you know, bring out some of the better players, so you get a. It's a very good representative look, uh, and also a lot of friends from other teams and, and friends with the Rays were there, so it's good social outing as well. Now, can you see? Would you go? To, first of all, uh, can a normal citizen go to an instructional league game? So the thing today at the Trop was close to the public, just so they wouldn't have, I think, as much sort of cleanup and liability of a bunch of people sitting around. Right. Um, but yeah, all the other games are open. Uh, but you have to like call the office of the team to get a schedule or make sure the game isn't rained out. Like I have to text scouts who get the emails from the teams if games have been rained out because there's been a lot of rain lately. Yeah. Uh, and there's, you know, other than like a couple of girlfriends or parents or friends from school kind of thing, it's like maybe a handful of fans. Usually it's like autograph seeker types. Like it's like GCL games, you'll get maybe 20 fans at a game. Sometimes you get two or three at a game. Instructs it's like never more than five, just sort of random fans walking in. Uh, this is I want to say that this is not what I anticipated asking you, but this these questions I, I enjoy hearing the answers to them. Um, okay, one thing when are, when are the games typically played? 
Uh, so weekends, Saturday and Sunday games are usually 10 or 11. Uh, and then during the week, it's usually 12 to 1. Okay. Uh, it actually may be different in Arizona. I've actually haven't been to a lot of Arizona Instructs games. I think I just went to one last year where I was out at the Fall League. Oh, the, so the, I guess the original question was, what do players do that aren't in the big leagues that are of oh, yeah, some, right. of some interest? So typically if they're not in the big leagues, but they're of some interest or they want to keep playing, uh, it'll be another couple weeks until the Dominican and Puerto Rican and Venezuelan winter leagues start. I know, those start. are my favorite things to follow. There's something exciting, cause you have to, uh, expend a little bit of effort in, like, attempting to find, like, for, like, the Dominican games, like, you can usually, yeah, every night you can find, like, one feed, maybe, or every, every afternoon, whenever they're played. Yeah. And, 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 the, and usually the fans Harry, are insane. It's like the WBC, if people have seen that, it's like that times 10. Right. And it's Harry like Pavlidis, for baseball. people should know this if you don't follow Harry Pavlidis on uh, Twitter. Harry Pavlidis usually has a has a good link uh, to one of the to a DWL or, or, or a Venezuelan league game, but but there is something exciting about it, right? Because it almost feels like uh, you're discover you're able to discover something. Yeah. So. So yeah, so the players they either go to those winter leagues. Uh, there's uh, a limited Australian winter league, mm-hmm. uh, and there used to be a Hawaiian one. That was the one you wanted to go to. Um, and then there's the fall league, which each team can send six or seven players, and it goes for about six weeks, like Instructs, and it starts like right in the middle of Instructs. So mm-hmm. a lot of players will go to Instructs for a week or two, then go to the fall league, uh, but then the Instructs will finish like in the middle of the fall league, so they kind of stagger all these things out. And then they can can they play. What, is it common for a player to leave Instructs and go to the AFL? Yeah, almost all of them do. Uh, okay. You'll see, like, like I remember I was looking at the Pirates roster yesterday, and it had Josh Bell and Glasnow and some of the guys that are going to be going to the fall league. Sort of highlighted, like these are fall league guys as like, a, hey, they're only going to be here for a little bit, which is good when you've got a huge roster. You're not sure who's going to be there when and all that. They're, they'll point out these guys are definitely leaving early. I don't know if you know this, uh, Kylie, uh, but in, in the late 90s, a group of uh, American and Brazilian businessmen uh, attempted to – they got together to form um, the Rio de Janeiro Fall League, the Rio Fall League. Um, <laughs> and it was a great idea in theory uh, until it became abundantly clear to them that they had overlooked the fact that fall doesn't begin until March in uh, Brazil. <laughs> and so all the players had to they had to leave immediately to go to their respective minor league clubs. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it would be the the spring league then? Yeah, well, yeah, but that's uh, that was the that, problem. That's when it would be the appropriate time. Yeah, they just overlooked this one simple thing. Also, uh yeah, the players got nervous because the the water goes down differently in the toilet. And so that also was very They were irksome. alarmed, yeah. Yeah, it was very irksome for them. So they left immediately. So they short lived. I, I heard that's how Ike Davis got vertigo. <laughs> yeah. Wait, did he, he got vertigo, huh? Yeah. That's scary. Did he get it from, wait, that's, this is a dumb question. This is more than naive. Did he get it from a concussion or did he just happen to develop it? I don't know. Now I'm Googling it. I don't think I ever heard how he got it, but I assumed it was from oh, some that's, sort of head injury. Yeah, I don't know about joking about something like that, Kylie. You should have, you should have provided a disclaimer for that. Full of No, I know, I know he had vertigo. I just don't know how he got it. I'm, yeah. I'm not making it up. <laughs> well, I know, but, but, uh, anyway. How do, I don't know how someone gets vertigo. Um, maybe if they're. I, w- I would make a joke from the movie, but I can't remember any of the jokes from the movie. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely, it's one of the films, and I'm sure it's a terrific film. I have, I've at least fallen asleep to it. Um, and I know that Jimmy Stewart. High praise coming from you. Yeah. 
The uh, okay, what are we talking about? We're talking about these winter leagues, the instructs. Oh, yeah, the instructs sound fascinating. And you say the same thing is going on in Arizona as well. Yeah, and roughly the same time. The only difference is in Florida, they uh, are much more just like spring training, kind of play each other in pods. So there's like a pod around Tampa. There's like a pod around like Sarasota and Fort Myers. There's one closer to sort of Miami on the East Coast because the teams are so far away. Whereas in Arizona, they're all around Phoenix. And like I think the two farthest spring training homes are like an hour from each other, whereas in Florida, it's like four hours. Right, right, right. Okay. And this provides opportunity. Hey, here's a, here's another question. We, we were just talking about the access of um, uh, scouts from scouts from one organization um, visiting the instructional league games or spring you know it could be spring training league games of another of another organization um, I suppose because I was sort of asking you know oh are they allowed to do that but I, I thought well you might you probably want other organizations to have a pretty strong idea of the talent available within your own organization if you're going to be making trades in the future. Yeah, Instructs was really important. I I feel like more important five or six years ago when teams like basically didn't send scouts to short season leagues. And so if you were going to trade for a guy that hadn't had extent like a full season and mm-hmm. a full season league, we're we talking about like Class A and below. Yeah. Okay. So anyone that was, that hasn't had a lot like you know for a hitter more than a hundred at bats in low A, maybe you didn't see him there. If you were going to trade for him, say five to seven years ago, it was based off of instructional league looks. Because that was the only time where you could get like sustained at bats against real competition, uh, because teams just didn't scout short season. And in the last five to seven years, like teams now scout short season leagues. Like it's much easier for me to like say a GCL team that's on the East Coast that I just never see, but I know there's a couple names or I heard some stuff about a guy. Uh, it's not difficult for me to just talk to Aries Guts and figure out one that saw that team, even if it was just for a handful of games. It used to basically be. Um, Scouts would see GCL games if they were covering the Florida State League, and like when you're watching the Tampa Yankees across the street, the GCL Yankees were playing at noon, and the Tampa Yankees were at seven, and you heard that there's a good guy pitching today, and so you'll go check it out just in case there's a guy. Like that was sort of the what the typical team would get. They'd get that, and then they'd get instructs. And so if the guy didn't go to instructs, then you just didn't have information on him beyond, you know, unless you knew him when he was an amateur, basically. And then I think teams started figuring out, like, oh, sometimes the parent team doesn't know what they have until a guy gets the full season ball and all of their instructors have seen him. So we have a chance to sort of recognize guys, especially if we have an especially astute scout that maybe has some connections with the team, can kind of get some information if he's buddies with the hitting coach about what this guy's like as a person, things like that. If we get in the right situation, like Neftali Feliz, when he was traded to the Rangers um, in the Teixeira deal, he, had, I think, had only pitched in the uh, GCL for the Braves. So he was a guy that I believe was an instructional league guy, but he may have also been a, uh, a GCL scouting guy because I know the Rangers have historically been one of the more aggressive teams with that sort of stuff mm-hmm. uh, earlier than other teams were. So now instructional league is, now that these guys have a little more history, you could argue it's more or less important now that these guys are getting seen more, but there's still a lot of any, any given team. Like if I have a friend in front office that has access to all of their reports and I say, Hey, this guy was really good in 50 innings in the Appalachian league. It's still like 50, 50 that they got like an actual report on him. That wasn't just from, you know, the coach of their team in the Appy league saying this guy's pretty good. Keep an eye out for him. Like it's still not like blanketed like you get with uh full season leagues where everyone is seen multiple times usually. 
Uh, but yeah, now Instructs is just sort of another another version of that. And then obviously it's not just short season guys. You, you typically don't get the triple A type guy, but you'll get guys all the way up to double A going there, especially if they have stuff to work on. So like for instance, this Rays Red Sox game, uh, the Rays had their top July 2 signing, uh, Adrian Rondon, who just signed for, I want to say 2.9, maybe 3 million, who's been compared to Hanley Ramirez as sort of that kind of guy. And since the July 2 guys, they signed to save an extra year for six-year free agency, they signed deals in July that go into effect for the next year. So Instructs is the first time they can play in like an organized game. So for those all the $30 million with the guys the Yankees signed, this is their first chance to play anything. It's the first time for their instructors to see them. And then scouts are also sort of seeing them for the first time, unless they were international guys such as myself that kind of saw them before they signed. So, And that's, uh, to give some context, like Jerks and Profar signed for $1.5 million. As a shortstop, people thought he might should have been a uh, right-handed pitcher. He went to Instructs and totally blew up. And I think he was in the top ten of every prospect list of all the publications based off of a handful, maybe a couple weeks of at-bats and Instructs because everyone was so impressed with him. So that's kind of the idea of how a guy can go from big bonus, maybe he's 30th on a top 30, to definitely in the top ten if, you know, sort of what you hear is borne out and he's facing, you know, high A and double A pitchers and really, really crushing them, which there's one guy on the Yankees in particular that is, looks sort of head, head and shoulders above the other July 2 guys they just signed. Now, when you're, so when you're watching these, are these games being played? This doesn't bore you, I hope, does it? Is it? You no, know it's, I mean, this is what I've been doing basically every day for the last week or two, so I'm interested. <laughs> yeah, and I just, I'm just trying to, to understand the sort of, you know, the logistics of it. It's exciting to me. Um, um, the so when you're when when these games are taking place so you, like you you would go to a game for example at the Yankees complex right well they actually play them in the stadium where the Tampa Yankees oh yeah play. that's what I was going to ask do they play them because I know sometimes I go to these complex games and you mentioned like it's the, at the discretion of the team most of them are played on backfields but in this case the Yankees play it all there's in the stadium because they're renovating their backfields okay well because I know that the during spring training or whatever I go to the backfields at Roger Dean uh, down in uh, in Jupiter. Yeah. And well, one thing is that with regard to the comment uh, you made, uh, you get like 80 guys, but they kind of comes in waves of 40s. Uh, I yeah. know that w- when I see the the minor leaguers at Roger Dean, because you know the, at one o'clock or whatever, all f- four games start simultaneously on those fields, and there are multiple players with, at each with each number. You know, yeah. so you have over 100 guys, and so you have like you know two number 23s, and you're like, well, is this a uh, you know, I don't know. Is this Oscar Tavares or some guy who's not definitely Oscar Tavares? And I figure that out eventually. But some of the more obscure players, you don't necessarily even know who you're looking at. And of course, now with with the way instructs are, uh, every team's got a number 69, so we always get some giggles when that guy comes up. Yes, it's true, right? <laughs> uh, because we are we are puerile young men. Even when uh, we're older, we'll be puerile. And the conversations are also funny because. You know, a lot of these scouts, like, it's the scouts that live in the general Tampa, Tampa area, mostly area scouts. We all kind of know each other. Uh, I remember at one point we talked for, it was like sort of a group of us, like 15 of us all sitting near each other kind of talking. And we talked about the nearby restaurants to the Yankee Stadium, like where we wanted to go. And then one guy went off on a jag talking about, like, the best places he's eaten on the road and then the craziest bowel movements he's had. And it was, wow. <laughs> it was just like he was basically doing, like, a one-man show for, like, two straight innings talking about. Was he, is he entertaining, this one? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and everyone kind of gets an idea. It's typically the guy in his, you know, 50s that everyone knows that's a former player that, you know, is sort of talented at those sorts of things that sort of, you Wait, know. And producing pound movements? 
No, well, at that, yeah. But, I mean, sort of being like the, you know, life of the party, for oh, lack yeah. of a better yeah, word. Yeah. Everyone sort of knows who that guy is. And right. since it's, you know, all guys from the area that know each other, we all, we all sort of gravitated to him to see what he wanted to say. But, yeah, we're talking about, I, I would... uh I, it would have to be around the right people, but typically uh, I find usually some joy in talking about bowel movements because it's such a uh, uh, it's such a universal experience. Well, and that was actually one of the things I texted you that I really liked the the podcast with Eno introing his conversation with Brandon Moss because I think one it gave more insight into Eno's article to sort of hear the intonation and stuff like that as he said, but I feel like the I find myself explaining to readers that you know draft boards and draft rooms are more blank than you think they are, trying to sort of give them an idea of sort of the tone in the room. Right. But people are always confused by this, saying like, oh, well, how?" Like one of the things I point out is that there's less consensus than you think. Any given team could have a guy ranked 30th that you would scream at Keith Law if he didn't have him ranked in the top 15. And if you were to ask their guys, they'd be like, yeah, we just didn't think he was that good. Like it's not a big deal. And everyone understands that, that's sort of been in a draft room or been in a front office, like – that the industry consensus ranking, I'm putting air quotes on that, sure. is kind is kind of ridiculous. Um, even though that's what I'm sort of trying to get at. Although I think I do a little more of like what Keith does, like a little more of my evaluation as opposed to you know averaging what six people tell you. I kind of get my opinion in there also. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I say that to to mention that I think another part of that audio that uh, Eno had with Brandon Moss, you can read articles of Eno talking to guys in a clubhouse. But I don't think that the average reader gets an idea uh, of the sort of tenor and, uh, you know, sort of attitude and playfulness that players have about this sort of thing. Well, and, and I would say Moss is, is kind of the best case scenario for all of it, at least from my limited experience. Because he also understands what Eno's talking about. So he's yeah, sort of right. Like, and he was – just the, the, the comfort with which he talked about uh, not just his strengths but his weaknesses as well. And yeah. like – and it, it is like – if. In most um, in most vocations, you don't have to be so frank about your weaknesses and have to live with them so clearly. And and one of the things either wrote about or we talked about on a prior podcast that in the big leagues, everybody knows. Like Brandon Moss knows he's had what thousands of at bats in the big leagues. He knows everyone knows the book on him. Like mm-hmm. he's okay talking about. I know I'm good at this. I know people know I'm bad at this. I'm working on this thing. This is the kind of player I am. I know what my limitations are, that sort of thing. Whereas I feel like in a lot of different fields, uh, like I was talking to a guy at a game yesterday, how if you're a team president, like scouts that all they do is scouts still don't know who the good scouts are decades after they've done it. And if you sit and watch a game with a guy and say, that's a 50, did you think that was a 50? Yeah, I thought that was a 50. And then you see the players they pick, you know their staff and how they interact with them. Like, when you know everything, you still don't really know who the good scouts are. So how could a team president who doesn't have anywhere near that level of insight to, like, the individual inputs of if a guy's a good GM, how would he know if a guy's going to be a good GM? Yeah. People that have worked with that guy for two decades don't know if he's going to be a good GM. <laughs> so what is that guy possibly looking at? Yeah, that's uh that's nerve wracking. I mean, I guess I guess it's a benefit for continued employment. The the less, I guess, the less easy it is for one's, uh, for one's work to be evaluated objectively, the the better that is for continued employment. Or I guess it, not not always, but it's it's based on something else at that point, right? And it, we we talked about this last week, I think. The, the degree to which personal relationships uh, become rather important uh, in terms of getting hired as a as a scout or other sort of uh, you know uh, 
talent evaluator in in the, you know within the industry is uh, no you know knowing people is very important. Whereas um, you know if you're trying to get a contract, if you're a baseball player, you're trying to get a contract for X you know millions of dollars. Just knowing someone is is uh, not sufficient. Yeah, and yeah, and I guess to to tie all that together, I was saying that. Brandon Moss knows that everybody knows everything about him and mm-hmm. the, and the people that he should be scared of hearing that interview and thinking like, Oh, now we can take advantage of this information of knowing how he thinks about how he swings by doing X. He knows that they knew that six months ago. If it was somebody in, you know, in a clubhouse that needs to know that they already knew, which is sort of refreshing when if you look at like, you know, future GM lists and who gets to be GMs, every team has technically five or six guys that are qualified to go take an interview for a GM job, which means that with 30 teams, there's well over a hundred candidates, but you keep hearing the same 10 or 20 names. And I just told you, like, even the people that know everything about these guys don't know who's going to be good. What makes those 10 or 20 guys be the names you keep hearing? Presumably it's a lot of interpersonal stuff. It's a lot of luck. You know, it's a lot of he was on a team that was doing a good thing. So everyone assumed he was smart at the same time. And there's obviously some skill there too. It's not all noise. Uh, but yeah, that it was interesting to me to hear, you know, talking to a guy and being that honest and him understanding what he you knows saying and not having to sort of spoon feed him this information while also getting sort of the aura of what's going on in a clubhouse. Like Roxette. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of rock set going on. And having a, a sort of more quiet, reserved guy versus a more sort of bombastic, joking guy, and then also hearing, you know, the intonation of how he was explaining this stuff and how that can be taken out of context and how you would normally read that article in, in text. I just thought that for a tidy 20 minutes, you got all of that stuff and then also got you two sort of introing it, talking about, you know, well, he said this, which I didn't mention, but, you know, Adam Dunn said, I forgot what it, what the what the phrase was, but it was like burn it all down or whatever. Yes. Like, that's not a thing you put in an article. That's only a thing you get on a podcast. Like, that's sort of the only format where that can sort of be mentioned yeah. offhandedly, which is why I like doing stuff like this, because I feel like, uh, you know, there's things I write, there's things I answer on Twitter, there's things I answer in comments, and there's things I say on a podcast, and a lot of times certain pieces of information only fit in one of those formats. Yeah. And I would say that the, um, one more remark with regard to Masa's comments, and uh, you, you mentioned that he's he's talking about that scouting report concerning his own uh, his own tendencies because he knows that other teams know. It, but the other thing he knows is that there is a gap, there's always going to be a gap between the plan with which a pitcher approaches him and then also that pitcher's that same pitcher's execution. And yeah. so if you have one zone that's kind of high and outside, but you know, high, you know, the high outside part of the strike zone, but if, if that pitcher misses a little bit closer in and especially, uh, further down, if that, if that, if that's now that's, uh, Brandon Moss's sweet spot. So, yeah. so I think Brandon Moss, you know, to a certain degree, he relies on, uh, you know, he, re- he relies on the same, you know, large samples, right? Because he says, well, you know, maybe, yeah, for a week or, you know, one start or for a couple of consecutive starts, maybe pitchers are able to, you know, to hit my weaknesses and they sustain it for that long. But eventually, uh, eventually guys miss. And if he feels very comfortable, uh, if he feels very comfortable hitting the ball when it is in a certain, uh, you know, area of the strike zone, then, you know, eventually he'll get his pitch. Yeah, and actually the... What I thought of while uh, you were talking about that is how a lot of people mentioned that sort of interplay, sort of game theory, and like a chess match. Um, did you see any of the coverage of this really big chess match that happened like last week, I think it was, 
Oh, no, no, no. Tell me about, about it. So I, I'm, I read from an article on Slate by Seth Stevenson called Grandmaster Clash. Really good okay. title. Okay. Um, apparently, so there's this guy uh, named Magnus Carlsen who's Norwegian and like a model who is like the number one player in the world and arguably one of the best players of all time. Uh, and there's this really big tournament that just happened in St. Louis. Uh, the reason it happened in St. Louis is some rich guy that likes chess decided to pay for all this stuff and make St. Louis like a chess capital. So they basically got the, definitely the best collection of chess players in the last 20 years and maybe the best collection of talent ever to all play in this tournament uh, which was seen as, you know, oh, this could be an opportunity for this Magnus Carlsen guy to, you know, sort of further cement his legacy. And it turned out that the story was this guy named Fabiano Caruana, who is uh, uh, an American uh, who trained in Europe and was, I believe, ranked like seventh or eighth, like still really, really high, but not the upper echelon guy that gets, you know, like all the coverage, this number one guy. And he won seven matches in a row, which... I didn't quite understand, but when you sort of read the article, you can see that, like, basically people that are this good can just see that they're in trouble and just make a draw happen. And this guy was beating players that were ranked higher than him, in most cases, seven times in a row, and none of them were able to sort of pull out a uh, a draw, which is kind of amazing. And they were they were trying to draw uh, parallels to this, which, you know, they weren't very good at, but the, the chess commentators, but suffice it to say, it was very rare. Maybe, I don't know, a 40-game hitting streak or 50 or what, something like that. Like, very rare. Um, and so when, I, when you kind of read some of the details about, like, well, why did he win? Why was it so surprising? And they were saying that uh, this Magnus Carlsen guy is seen as sort of an improvisational guy, that, like, he uh, just wants to get into the game. He doesn't necessarily study it a lot, but he's very good at noticing a weakness and then exploiting it and will, like, play for three hours with one little weakness or one wrong move that the opponent made and just will patiently sit there and wear you down and is more of, like, a like a feel guy as opposed to, like, one of these guys that just studies the computer models, whereas Caruana is one of these guys that tirelessly uh, pre- prepares for everything. And they were saying that, like, sort of the skill in this is that, you know, one, it's the work ethic of learning all of the different things, which obviously can be can be paralleled to the video of, you know, studying pictures and some of the stuff that Moss talked about. But they were saying that a lot of guys could technically put in the work and learn all these things, but it's like the ability to recall all of the different patterns uh, and then to be able to, like, something you didn't expect your opponent to do that he'd never done before, there is a way to get around it. It's a 17-step uh, process of these 17 moves in a row have to happen, and you have to do them all, like, recall them all in the right order and not mess any of the moves up, and then you can get out of it. But then you have to be, you know, uh, diligent enough to have studied for that thing that you weren't expecting for this guy's never done that before. Uh, and so there were some instances in the article. But I, anyway, so... What I'm trying to say is <laughs> the, the, this thing with Brandon Moss sounds like this other thing I just read, and I'm giving you some details about a thing I don't know about that an article taught me about that I found very interesting. In conclusion, <laughs> let's talk about Yasmani, Yasmani Thomas, Thomas for a moment. Yes. Uh, he's a, I mean, he's another Cuban player. What, uh, did he, did he uh, defect recently? Is that the idea? Uh, it was in June, I want to say. It was okay. like in the last six months. Okay. And, but, but he's, but he's going to be eligible soon. Is that the idea? Soon, yeah. The, there's a, there's like a three or four step process and I believe a couple of the steps have already happened. So it should be within weeks, if not days. Okay. And, uh, so the idea, so the thing is, 
Cuban players have signed contracts for uh, ever-growing dollar amounts. And not surprisingly, because uh, – this isn't surprising, I should say, because uh, they've continued to uh, quit themselves uh, very well in the major leagues. Uh, of course, Jose Abreu is probably – well, Rosny Castillo is the most most recent, but Jose Abreu was a rookie this year. And, uh, you know, he's uh, – uh, especially with uh, Masahiro Tanaka having been injured. He's uh, the obvious favorite for the Rookie of the Year award. Uh, he's you know, he's really one of the best hitters in the American League at this point. Uh, and so, of course, uh, the Red Sox would sign Rusny Castillo for, what, $70 million, something like that? 72, yes. 72, and then uh, – and but now uh, Yasmani Tomas is, a, is another uh, Cuban defector who – is if not necessarily as great as Abreu or Castillo, is at least uh, approaching that in terms of uh, overall ability. Yeah, I would say the Castillo versus Tomas is more of preference. One is a speedy up the middle guy with some raw tools that you think will use them all. Could be could play second base, could play center field, but you're just sort of you're you're sort of buying the athleticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Tomas is sort of like Abreu in that it's a pretty much bat power only, not a lot of speed, not a lot of defense. Abreu is obviously like, I don't know, a 30 runner that plays a fringy first base, whereas Tomas is more of a fringe average runner that could play an average left field. So there's a little more speed and defense there. Okay. But, yeah, he's not Puig, he's not Solari, he's not Rosny Castillo, he's a 70 runner. Um, you're counting on the bat. The problem is uh, Jose Abreu had a long history of hitting everywhere, like we just mashed at every event. There was never a question that he would hit, you know, 260 or 270 and draw some walks. But the question was, is he going to strike out too much? Is he going to be able to get to his power against guys throwing 95? It was sort of a question of, is he going to be an average everyday guy or is he going to be a stud? Turned into a stud. Tomas has a little less raw power and is a little looser of a strike zone doesn't have quite the long history of hitting, uh, has had some injuries, is only 24, so it's not like he could possibly have, you know, seven years in the Cuban leagues and international play and all that. So he's a riskier bet, and the upside is also lower because it's a little less power. He's probably never going to be a, you know, 370 on base kind of guy. Um, but, so if he's basically as good as Castillo, just a different kind of guy, definitely behind Abreu, definitely behind Puig, Puig and Abreu got 45 and 65 million, roughly. This guy's clearly behind them, and he's going to get maybe double what Puig got. Uh, because as you were saying, like, the prices keep rising. The discount rate for, you know, he's mysterious. We don't know what he is, is basically disappeared at this point. And in some cases, it's turned into a premium that, uh, there's a little bit of mystery. This could turn out really well. The four hitters that have gotten big contracts, uh, I believe over 40 million are Puig, Soler, Abreu, and Cespedes, and they've all been fantastic compared right. to expectations. And now Castillo is the next one. We'll see if he also beats expectations. So it's almost like the the mysterious, risky thing is almost becoming a positive, and then also he doesn't uh, have the draft pick compensation tied to him. Uh, so then a guy that is lesser than these guys that are getting 40 to 60 million is a coin flip with a guy that just got 72 million. He has power, which is in demand, so now all of a sudden rumors are he might get a hundred million and I've I've been told there have been a lot of rumors flying around that he's already got a ninety million dollar offer in hand. Hmm. Hmm. And I don't know, is he any better than like uh 
certain versions we've seen of Nelson Cruz, for example. Is that a? Uh, that's that's reasonable. Some guy on Twitter said he sounds sort of like Chris Davis, which I think he's a better hitter than Chris Davis, but isn't completely different of a player. Right. Uh, some guys mentioned Kevin Mitchell. Like, yeah, oh, people yeah. in the comments have come up with a lot of players that are like of this type. Right. Uh, but yeah, there's one one uh, scout that I talked to said he's kind of like Cespedes. The guys that like him will say he's going to do what Cespedes does, hit you know 260, 320 on base with 25 homers. He's not the same kind of quick twitch sort of athlete that Cespedes right. is. And some other guys think he's more like Diane Viciadio, who's basically replacement level. Right. Uh, so that's sort of the the risk. Whereas, like I said, Abreu, nobody thought he would be less than a you know win and a half player. It's just a matter of if he could be that three or four one guy. Yeah, Vicero does it. He's got a tough time with the strike zone, I think. And I mean, the, the play discipline generally, contact, and he which, yeah. which is absolutely the concern with Tomas. But yeah, no, he. I think he's a little more gifted. Uh, I actually answered something in the comments of the article where someone said it didn't look like his bat's moving that fast. Why would you say bat speed? And I explained that Tomas actually doesn't load his hands as far back as most power hitters do. Mm-hmm. So he's able to generate above average bat speed in a much smaller area, which obviously gives him uh, a shorter path to the ball, which gives him a better chance to make contact. And so if he can sort of clean up his approach a little bit, he's got a chance to be an above average hitter with plus power, which is obviously in demand. And that's, I think that's what the teams that are being, that are bullish, that are rumored to be up around 90 or 100 million, that's what they see is, He's young, we can fix this, he hasn't played so much that we know that he doesn't have a good approach or that we know it can't be fixed, and we're, if we give him a six or seven year deal as expected, we're getting 24 through 30, which could all be in the big leagues. So there's obviously a lot of reasons to get on board. Hmm. All right. Well, there you go. That's the report on that. We're done. <laughs> it's over. Yeah, you did it, yeah. Uh, oh, I, so, well, can I give a tease? I have two more international articles coming. Oh, yeah, do that. Uh, so one will be about uh, what MLB is doing with the international rules, which this one may go up tomorrow. But they've recently changed some, some rules, and uh, basically the rules they had been changing in the past were, all right, let's try to make this system better. What if we do this, similar to how they did with the draft? There's unintended consequences, but it seemed to generally be moving in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. And then this most recent change, they didn't tell teams the change was coming. They didn't ask them for their opinion. And all the change did was cover up one of the unintended consequences while making it harder for both teams and players and agents to do their job. So, like, the only thing it did was to sort of a CYA move by MLB. And that's, that's six letters for you to try to figure out what that means. Uh, so I, that, that part's already been reported and discussed. What I'm trying to figure out from talking to sources the last few weeks is what MLB, sort of what their mindset is. What are they trying to accomplish by what they're doing? Uh, which the results will shock you. <laughs> and the other thing is, um, people are always asking me, Hey, uh, I know July 2 for next year. That's a long way off, but is there a huge guy for next year? Is there a Miguel Sano, Miguel Cabrera, a huge dude that I need to know about? Yeah. Which I, th- I think mostly is for these ridiculous dynasty leagues, for fantasy leagues, where mm-hmm. people are drafting 15-year-olds. Sounds like it. So it turns out there is not a huge guy for next year, but there is one for the year after. The year after. He's 14. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. And then there also is a guy that's been written about, but I have some, some more details, a Cuban player who is currently – MIA, nobody knows where he is, but he's going to turn up soon. And he is being rumored to be that guy that is that Puig uh, that could, you know. Where did he go? 
Well, he defected, it appears. He's not in Cuba. Nobody knows where he is in Cuba. So it's assumed he's in, you know, Mexico or wherever, and he'll just turn up at some point. But here's the interesting part. You would think, oh, if he's like Puig, then he's going to get what Puig would deserve if he was on the on the market right now, which would surely be over $100 million. Yeah, over $100 million. But this kid would be subject to international bonus pools because he is, I believe, 20. So that means oh. – and so the interesting part is – if he is found and clears and becomes a free agent before next July 2, then the teams that already went way over their bonus polls, Yankees and Red Sox, would be in a huge advantage because they already have incurred these penalties. Oh, yeah. So it wouldn't necessarily penalize them more to continue to go over, but they'd still have to pay a dollar-for-dollar dollar penalty. Yeah, so if they give him $20 million, it'll cost them 40 Yeah. But then if he gets cleared next July 2 – not only can the Yankees and Red Sox not sign him because they went over, and so now they can't sign a player for over 250000 for two straight years, so they're eliminated completely. Now a completely separate group of teams would potentially want to go after him, and it would be at the beginning of the pool opening up, and so teams would have no team would necessarily have committed all their money yet. Uh, so it then becomes how much would you pay a guy if he's worth $100 million if you have to pay a dollar-for-dollar dollar 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 penalty if you think he's worth 75, do you then pay him 35 and then pay the 75 total? Because it would have to be in a bonus. You can't give him a big league deal. So it then becomes sort of an interesting uh, sort of game theory issue. Yeah. What are you going to do? I'm going to go grill the steak. Oh, yeah. That sounds great. I, I looked. I guess you texted it to me. I saw that picture of your place there. That looks great. Yeah, I just I just turned the chair 45 degrees, and that's what you say. What a jerk. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you were interrupted by uh, I would suppose pretty girls in the last episode. So, uh, yeah, I got women coming over here all the time. I mean, not not to see me, but just generally. Yeah, you gotta beat them away with a stick. <laughs> Luckily, I have all these sticks. <laughs> so no women. All right. All right, I gotta go. I gotta. I literally have work to do. But, uh, yeah, I literally do. I'll tell you what the work is in a moment. I cannot divulge this information. But for the moment, I uh, will say uh, thank you, Kyla McDaniel. And you will soon be getting my email with the Rosh Hashanah-themed intro music. Oh, good. Oh, great. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. That's great. That has been Kyla McDaniel, the lead prospect writer for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs.com.